In church, I'm glad that we can meet, you know, like this, even though we all have to wear masks, you know, in our church, to be able to meet and to be able to sing praises to the living God, our Savior, to sit under his word and fellowship with others, it's an immense privilege. Church, this week I've decided to deviate from my original plans uh, and to preach a two-part mini-series, given what's going on in the world right now, entitled uh, Racism, Rioting, and Redemption. You know, it was uh, the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon who told his young students that when they were preparing to preach, that they should hold on to not just a Bible and read it, but also pick up the newspaper as well and read it alongside their Bible. Spurgeon wasn't trying to say that uh, the Bible was of equal weight with the newspaper, but what he was trying to say to them was that he believed that the scriptures needed to be applied to the current events going on in the world and that a wise pastor needed to show people how to live in light of God's timeless wisdom. And I think the same thing applies to us as well. You know, I don't think it's a stretch for me to be able to say that 2020 has probably been one of the most exceptional years, you know, I mean, in history, especially in modern history. You know, we saw a basically a global pandemic that completely shuttered the world's economy for a period of time. We are now experiencing also worldwide anti-racism protests. We see the pictures and images of rioting around the world and also loud calls for the defunding of the police. We see statues being torn down. We see society, especially in the United States, being upended. You know, when I look at these things, I can't but help and think that I think we are in the middle, actually, of a massive societal transformation. And the effects of this, we aren't going to really fully realize until probably the next few years and decades roll by. You know, when I was thinking about it, I realized that perhaps that what has happened, it's probably going to be very similar maybe to the way that the Gutenberg's printing press affected the world in the 15th century. If you know anything about the printing press, it was the printing press and the movable type that allowed for scientists to have uh, data to be shared very rapidly through books, you know, increasing sort of the scientific revolutionary advances. The printing press also allowed Martin Luther and many of those in the Protestant Reformation to advance their ideas and to publish Bibles so that the people could read them, and it weakened the hold of the Roman Catholic Church and allowed this movement to spread around the world. The printing press was absolutely revolutionary in its effect on the world. And I think the same thing actually is happening today, but with a very different type of revolution, a digital revolution. And I think that has been brought about by the smartphone camera. Now, what has happened is that it has allowed anybody with one of these small devices in their pockets to be able to have a global audience by simply going live on one of these streaming platforms. Today, in the world, we don't just hear about things or read about them. We actually see them as they unfold not through the filtered lens of like a media or government agency, but through the camera lens of average Joes like you and me who happen to be there at critical moments recording these things and publishing them for the world to see. So when you go on YouTube today or Twitter and you see the footage that's shot now, absolutely sickening to see some of the brutality or police violence or the rioting and stuff that's going on, the verbal and the physical assaults that are just captured... Because everybody has a camera now in their pocket, you realize what's actually happening. It's not that these things didn't exist before, but what has happened is that sin 
in our lives does not have time to put on its makeup and its best face and get out there. Instead, sin in all of its ugliness is exposed and caught instantly with a cell phone camera. And you see it actually for what it is in its raw and its pure form. I think it's actually what's happening. Now, in spite of all the turmoil, I do think that these videos, you know, that have been shot have done a lot of good actually for society. For example, I think it has pulled back the dark covering that allows sin uh, to thrive, you know, in. Sin loves darkness. And when these videos are shot and put online, the covering is pulled away. The dark soil is disturbed and doesn't allow for sin to be able to grow as easily. For example, if you go online, you listen to what's been going on. You can listen to George Floyd's last words of I can't breathe. You can go on and look, look and see about the Karens that are being uh, vilified online, these individuals who have made racist comments, whether it's Lisa Alexander in California who lied bold-facedly in front of the camera claiming that she knew who lived in a house when she didn't to sort of hide her racist remarks, or you look at, for example, Amy Cooper in Central Park who called the police on an African-American man that she lied was threatening her life. The internet has gone to work on these people, and it's now available for everyone to see. You can't hide in this digital age. Now, like I said earlier, as many activists have noted, it's not that this stuff is new. It's just for the first time in human history, it's being recorded. When Steve Jobs released the iPhone 13 years ago with the first iPhone in 2007, I don't think he could have imagined the revolution that he had brought to the world. Things have changed in the matter of less than two decades now. Now, the way I look at it and I think about it, it's like I feel like to borrow a biblical metaphor, basically when the fullness of time came and the camera phone was sent into the world, basically that's when activism took off. You know, I think it's helped many that are oppressed, and it's done good. You know, as a Canadian professor out at McMaster University named Emile Joseph, who has written about this phenomenon in our culture, uh, uh, what the smartphone has done, he says that people feel somewhat empowered by being able to record and put evidence out there. Now, I know that in Canada, as we look at those things and we watch these videos, we're tempted to think, okay, those are American problems and that Canada is very different, right? We are a multicultural people. All Canadians are polite. Our favorite word is sorry, you know. We're a safe haven for slaves during the uh, uh, American Civil War. So we generally have a very good view, I think, of ourselves. However, I think the truth is a bit different from that. You know, four years ago, the Globe and Mail actually put out a podcast uh, for some 11 episodes or so called Color Code. And what it did was it explored the issues of racism and race here in Canada, And one of the things that the Globe and Mail noted was that many Canadians, they would say, suffer from what is called an angel complex. And that is basically, we compare ourselves to the United States and their history, and then we think that we're absolute saints. However, the dirty truth is that if we were to examine our history, I think we would discover that we are far more self-righteous and sinful than we are actually willing to believe. And our history would back that up. So, for example, if you go back to the beginnings of early Canada and you look at when the French actually began settling what was called New France, black slavery was actually enforced by mandate of the French kings. For example, when the British afterwards conquered New France in 1760 and they signed you know, a peace treaty, Article 47 of those terms of capitulation actually stated this, that the Negroes and the Pani, that is uh, the First Nations people that they had also made into slaves, 
of both sexes shall remain in their quality of slaves in the possession of the French and Canadians to whom they belong. In other words, slave ownership was widespread actually in colonial Canada, and some slave owners, including government officials, owned over 20 slaves who worked for them. Even when slavery was officially abolished in the British Empire in 1833, racist sentiments actually continued to exist in Canada. In fact, the racially segregated schools continued to exist in Canada well through the 20th century. And in the 1900s, actually, it might surprise you to know that the last racially segregated school closed in Lincolnville, Nova Scotia only in 1983. That is barely, that is barely, right, 40 years ago. But to understand this, in Canada, racism was not just a white and a black phenomenon in our country. For example, if you go back to just 1939, Velma Demerson, who actually just died recently, I think last year, she was actually arrested in Ontario for her scandalous interracial behavior of living with her Chinese fiancé. Now, the early Chinese who came to Canada, you know, the 1800s, basically to work on the railroad, And also the early 1900s, as you know, were subjected to a head tax as well that only applied to Chinese immigrants who were often given the most dangerous jobs when they worked on the railroad, jobs that other people would not take, and they worked oftentimes for half pay. If you look also throughout the 20th century, it wasn't just the Chinese, but also the First Nations. The government records show that over 150,000 First Nations or Métis or Inuit children were actually taken from their families and forced to attend residential schools, whereas we know now they were subjected many times to pretty horrific abuse. A lot of that's only coming out right now. During World War II, for example, uh, the Canadian government forced over 20,000 Japanese people three-quarters of whom were Canadian citizens, some of who lived in Richmond or Steveston, that area, to leave their homes and to be forced to go to internment camps. Internment camps. I mean, that was brutal. Canadian citizens. I can't imagine something like that happening today. But could it maybe in the future? You know, I uh, read these things and I realize that these, of course, are examples of racism at the highest levels, you know, in our culture, in our country. But the truth of the matter is that racism also exists at the individual level as well. You know, in 1996, after Canadian athlete Donovan Bailey won the gold medal at the 1996 Olympic Games, I think in Atlanta, he actually used his fame and uh, his interviews to talk to people of the fact that he said that although Canada isn't as blatantly racist as the United States, he said it still exists here in our country. He said, however, in Canada, it's racism with a smile. Now, his words, I think, actually still ring to today. We Canadians, in one sense, are better at covering up our sin, you know, under a veneer of politeness. For example, if you doubt that or wonder whether or not the seeds of that are still in our culture, you need only to look at last year, I think an Ipsos poll that was released that said that um, uh, as they polled Canadians, 15% of Canadians, one in seven, would actually never have a relationship with someone outside of their own race. That's one in seven people who identify as Canadian. It's not just white or anything. I'm talking about all Canadians, Asians, whites, uh, Indian, anything, all of this included. One in seven. See, it really begs the question, doesn't it, right? If we're honest, in our multiculturalism, well, forgive the metaphor, 
are we really only skin deep, you know, in our love for each other? You know, I've personally listened to stories from people in Vancouver who have been personally spat on, abused, physically assaulted as well, simply on the basis of their skin color. But I also acknowledge what Donovan Bailey says is true, that there is the other kind of racism, which is the subtle kind, under the surface, which is racism actually with a smile. It comes in the form of stares, polite avoidance, the doubting of whether or not, because of your skin color, the way you look, that you were born in this country or that you could actually be Canadian, or even maybe even a genuine lack of concern that is given to a particular people group. Oftentimes, Canadians can practice racism maybe even in the forms of just negligence and turning a blind eye to abuses. You know, on a personal note, um, despite the fact that I was born and raised in Vancouver and would be probably as Canadian as they come, I myself and even my family have experienced things like racism. When I was a young boy, our family was one of the only Asian families, was the only Asian family actually on the block. Can't imagine that now today. But we were the only Asian family on the block, and I still remember as a child, there was a time I was out with uh, boys in the neighborhood, and they took the opportunity to make fun of me, and then to take my toys and roll them basically into dog poo. I was so upset by it, I remember running away to tell my parents. And then there was a confrontation with the children's parents afterwards. There was no apology that was given, and instead, those parents basically told us that we were dirty chinks, and that we needed to get out of the country and go back to China, where we came from. That was my first experience with racism as a young child. You know, fast forward to today, and not even counting the incidents since then, it's still alive, you know. Uh, there's one example I can think of just recently, where my wife uh, took one of our daughters basically to a bathroom in a public park. And as they were in there, there was a lady that ended up racially insulting her. And then when my wife didn't respond back in kind, she assumed that my wife did not speak English and then proceeded actually to just verbally attack her and talk about how angry she was with the Chinese who were taking over the country and faulting her for not understanding English and then also telling her to get out of the country. This stuff is real, you know, today. I, I know that some of you who are immigrants perhaps have faced something similar in your time here in Canada I'm not saying these things to try to garner pity, but I, what I'm trying to do as well is to raise awareness over something that maybe some people here listening today don't realize actually exists in our country today, and it's more prevalent than we think. Don't hear me as well as picking on one particular group of people either, one ethnic group, okay? Does white privilege exist? Yes, I do think so, but I would be very careful of how you would define that and who you would lob into that category, okay? Have Asians experienced more racism in Vancouver due to COVID-19? Yes, I do think so. But at the same time, let me be very clear here that though some Asians are victims of racism, not all have been, okay? And though Asians have been attacked more as a result of COVID-19, do not think that all Asians, for example, are perfect saints. In fact, I have listened as well to Asians who have racist sentiments as well, voice their opinions and their condemnation of other races as well. Asians are just as guilty as well, you know, of committing these sins at the same time. Every culture, I would say, in this world does have to deal with the issue of racism. Now, I'm glad that today we live in a world that wants change. But I think that in order to find a cure, 
we first need to be able to ask the question and understand what is the cause of racism. Now, there are many theories that are offered in our world as to what the root cause of racism is. For example, some have argued that really it's a matter of environments of hate or nurture, basically, that breed racism in people. For example, in the southern United States, there are pockets of people that have practiced generational sort of hatred and instilled this and passed it on to their children. Now, I don't disagree. I certainly agree that our environment definitely affects the way that we think and shapes us. But we still have to ask the question that why is it that even in those societies, there are a number of people who come out holding to a racist ideology, whereas others in that very same society hearing the same thing come out and say, this is absolutely distasteful to me, and I think it's absolutely wrong. The question is, why is that? Is it because some people are morally better than others? Is it some people have, are born with better genes? Are some humans just intrinsically of a better stock or better quality than other people? Are there good people that are born and are some just bad and therefore they cannot resist what their culture is telling them to do? It's a good question. Others have said, for example, the issue is education and dealing with the issues of ignorance in our society. For example, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, uh, UNESCO, is a specialized agency of the UN designed to build a better world. One of the articles they released is entitled, Education is the Key to Deconstructing Racial Narratives. In other words, what they propose here is that you teach kids young not to be racist then, show them uh, 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 the, the errancy of this thinking, and it will stick. Now, of course, certainly this is very similar to what we already talked about. What we learn young does have a huge impact on us. But the question again, is it really the root of the issue? Is it a lack of education? Is it a dealing of the issues of ignorance? In the United States, a scholar, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who is an anti-racism activist, is famous actually now and on the news for his uh, actions right now during this current time. He actually won the National Book Award for nonfiction with his recent book that he published called Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Dr. Kendi actually has a very different theory for what is at the root of racism. He says this in his We have been taught that ignorance and hate leads to racist ideas, lead to racist policies. If the fundamental problem is ignorance and hate, then your solutions are going to be focused on education and love and persuasion. But of course, stem from the beginning, shows that the actual foundation of racism is not ignorance and hate, but self-interest, particularly economic and political and cultural. I think that he's actually much closer to the source with this. And I think history actually supports him for instance, for example, if you were to look at uh, America during the colonial period and also when slavery was rampant, many Americans needed slaves to run their plantations and their homes. So what they did was they painted a picture of the black man as being barbaric, childlike, dangerous, and therefore, for their good and for the good of society, they needed to be enslaved. Right? So there was benefit to them, and so they constructed this narrative. In the 15th century, the same thing happened. When the Portuguese wanted to benefit economically from slavery, they appealed to the Pope, arguing that enslaving the pagans would actually reduce their barbaric behavior and have a positive religious influence on them and on society. So following this logic, 
the Pope actually issued a papal bull in 1455 to the Portuguese king Alfonso V, and that authorized him to do this: to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. It's ugly, but this is what happened. I think Kendi is actually very close in his thesis in, with regards to what is the root of racism. But I think the question still remains: This: Why would some people's self-interest still go so far as to degrade, kill, and sell other human beings, where other people's self-interest stops and says, "I can't go there"? Why is it that some people, in their self-interest, yeah, you know I mean, they can treat others like animals? Now, I think this is where. God's word helps us immensely by offering us the ultimate answer, and God's word has to say that the answer is nothing short of the universality of sin, that takes various forms and has of different strengths in different human beings coming out in different ways at different times. But it's universal. The universal cancer of sin lives in every single human being in the world, and it's what destroys our relationship with God, and that destroys our relationship with each other, and ultimately leads to self-interest that takes form. It's formed sometimes in the ugliness of racism. You know, the Bible is very clear that no human being is exempt from this. Right, Romans three ten says that no one is righteous, no not one. And Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, the Bible militates against the idea that some people are born intrinsically better or good people in God's eyes, while others are bad in God's eyes. Sure, we have different degrees of sin. Sure, some people are naturally kinder to others than other people are. Some people are more violent. But in, eye, in the eyes of God, all of us have done wrong things. All of us stand condemned before Him, and not a single person can wave their own righteousness before God and say, "I'm good enough that you should let me into." Heaven, I'm a decent human being, Lord. You know, in Jesus's time, both the tax collector and the prostitute, you know,、uh, were considered to be immoral people, and Jesus ministered to them. But there was also the very moral Pharisee who thought himself to be good, and Jesus had very harsh words for them, but still ministered to them and said, "All of you need my grace. All of you need repentance. All of you, John the Baptist said, need to repent of your sins and be baptized. Whether you're known in society as immoral or society thinks that you are very moral, all of you stand condemned in the eyes of an Almighty God." See. There's no question that everyone has the desire to be happy in our world and to do what they want, but the truth of the matter is, unless we answer to a higher power and live for something that goes beyond ourselves, we will always be faced with this dilemma, and that is the dilemma of pushing down other people or doing things to allow ourselves to get ahead so that we might benefit to the detriment of others. We always have to grapple with the fact that we will do things to perhaps want to boost our own self-esteem, our own pride, our own status, our own economic、uh, situation, our finances. This is universal. Everyone wants to be happy, and we employ one of these methods usually to get there. For example, an individual who looks down on other races and shouts at them to go back to their own country is actually simultaneously declaring their victims. 
racial inferiority while asserting and declaring their own sort of self-righteousness and their estimation of their own race's superiority. They don't just do it for no reason. It bolsters yourself and, and creates an image in your own mind of who you are by crushing another person. See, if your self-worth is not anchored in God and it's adrift in this moral sea of relativity of this world, you will have to anchor your sense of self-worth in something else, whether it's your own looks, your books, your achievements, or your perceived racial superiority. You have to find something to make you happy. Now, there's two ways to get to the top, right? You can either strive to get there by improving yourself, or the other way is to crush your competition, right? The sin of racism falls into the latter category. It's you push others down so that you can be up and you can be advantaged. It's putting yourself on the throne and letting other people serve you or be inferior to you so that you can feel good about who you are. See, but the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks against that and says, you don't need to do that. You don't need to crush other people to establish a sense of self-worth. The gospel says to you, you're worthless in it of yourself. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for you by dying on the cross, you are infinitely valuable in the sight of God because of Jesus' righteousness. See, the gospel speaks into the need for defining our own self-worth and says you don't need to. Let God define it for you. See, in Jesus Christ, you're a beloved child. So forget self-worth. Or let's say, for example, you have economic worries in this life. How will I pay my bills if prices continue to go up? Where am I going to live in Vancouver? I can't afford to do something. Uh, And what do I do if other races seem to be buying up all the properties and getting richer and richer, and I am not? Rather than looking inwards for a solution to the problem or looking upwards to God for a problem, many people find it easier to look outwards to other people and maybe blame them as well. And maybe if you can paint a terrible image of a certain kind of people or a certain group or certain policies and then maybe use the law against them, then maybe you can get what they have so that you will be better off. Now, I'm not saying that we should close a blind eye to money laundering or illegal activity or something that is changing the real estate market or doing things to our city. No, I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that there is a tendency in the human heart, if we can, to think about bettering our own lives to the detriment of others. And we will use reasoning, logic, and any means that we can, whether legal or illegal, if we are pressed hard enough to accomplish our goals. Now, as Christians, we don't have to think this way because ultimately our well-being, our economic well-being doesn't rest in our hands. We go to a God who says, I will feed you and take care of you. We want to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, who said, look at the birds of the field. Your Father in heaven feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field as well. They, even Solomon in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. And if these are taken care of, how much more will God take care of you of little faith? See, we as Christians don't need to do illegal things. We don't need to use racism or other avenues to benefit ourselves if we have faith and we can trust that the Lord will take care of us and will always fight for us. See, racism is motivated by self-interest, but sin is at the root of it. 
And that spiritual root actually cannot be cut away by anything other than the razor-sharp edge of the word of the living God. And it's only in God's word that we can actually understand not only how to deal with it, but why racism is so wrong. So what I want us to do today in this last half is to look at some scripture today and to go back to the beginning of creation to understand and see what God has to say about race in his own word. Okay? So if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along uh, in Genesis 1, or you can, open it, uh, you can open it, or you can follow along on the screen. Okay? The first thing that I would like to point out about this, number one, is that racism is an assault on the dignity and the glory of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, from this passage, we actually learn uh, something really important. We learn that human beings, first of all, are not just higher animals or uh, a more conscious species or the products of chance. We're actually individuals who are crafted in the very image of God Almighty. Therefore, both men and women... Because we're made in the image of God, therefore, to assault another human being, whether physically or verbally or racially, using slurs to disparage them or to hate them, is actually a very serious crime. James chapter 3, verses 9-10 says this about our tongues that we use. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. See, you know what James is saying here? Why can't you worship God and curse people or hate them at the same time? And the answer to that is because, as James goes back to Genesis, is because people are made in the likeness of God. They're made in his image. Therefore, when you praise God with your mouth and at the same time curse a fellow human being who is made in the likeness of God, you really are performing the contradictory action of praising God with your mouth and also attacking him at the very same time. And that inconsistency is unacceptable. See, for us Christians, it is the Bible that gives us the fundamental conviction that all human beings, irrespective of their color and race and background, are of equal worth, dignity, and value. It's an inviolable law in the universe, and to disregard that is to disregard God himself. Like, you can't come to me and say, Sam, we love you, but I absolutely hate your children. How do you think I will feel? I will probably say, you know, my kids are a real part of me as well. And if you hate them, you hate me. See, it's not a light thing to harbor hatred in your heart against another human being. That's a human being that bears the image of God Almighty. You know, Jesus explicitly condemns in the Sermon on the Mount hatred in the heart. Matthew 5, 22 says this, right? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
See, racism, which includes hatred in the heart, is a crime of divine proportions because it is an assault on the dignity and the glory of God Himself. That's why racism is so wrong. That's why Christians stand on these fundamental biblical convictions to fight against racism. My second point is this, number two. Race is God's idea and racism is ours. Genesis 1.28, which follows up on verse 27, says this. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, from this verse, notice what God's plan is for humanity. It's that humanity is supposed to multiply and fill the entire earth, spread out, and populate, basically, the world with divine image bearers. Now, as we read in Genesis, of course, sin gets in the way, you know, and basically the world becomes really terrible. God sends an enormous flood to wipe everyone out, and he reboots the world through Noah, basically, and his family. But the problem, of course, even though Noah and his family are saved through the ark and go out to begin fulfilling the mandate to populate the world, guess what else hitched a ride on the ark alongside the giraffes and other animals? Sin caught a ride on the ark as well. And sin continued to flourish and spread throughout the world. And by one chapter later, Genesis 10 to 11, you see the effects of sin once again spreading out through the earth. Now, in the two chapters that follow Genesis 9, 10 and 11, we read about the table of nations that shows about how the nations of the races of the world began to spread out. And so you read from Noah's family how there were descendants called like the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Philistines, and so on. And then you get to a very curious incident in Genesis 11 called the Tower of Babel. Now the Bible tells us there that at that time, the whole world spoke one language, And in their human arrogance, these individuals decide to defy their maker and build a tower to go up to the sky. And as a result of this, God seeing human defiance, it says the text says he comes down and decides to confuse their language and then disperses them all over the face of the earth. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand what the curse of Babel was. The curse of Babel was not that the people were scattered See, according to Genesis 1, the people were supposed to scatter and to go all over the earth and to fill it. That was the creation mandate that was given. What happened actually at Babel as a result of sin is that the human race was scattered in division, disunity, and mistrust rather than going out under the blessing of God in unity and bearing his image In other words, multiple races populating the world was God's idea. But the problem was, because of sin, it created division and disunity instead. And this is the reason why we have different languages in the world today and different cultures, and why there is so much fighting, war, and division, and racism amongst nations. Because of the Tower of Babel, when mankind sinned against God and multiplied, multiculturalism became a source of conflict. See, race was God's idea from the beginning, but racism is ours, the direct result of human sin. Now, after this, okay, God seems to focus on one particular people in Genesis chapter 12, one particular race, basically the Israelites. But hang on, there's a reason for this. Don't think that God was racist by dealing with primarily with one family and his line. 
When God chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he told him that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, all the races of the world are going to be blessed by your race, Abraham. But the question is, how could this happen, given that the result of human sin is division, disunity, and all sorts of other problems, including racism? Now, in the New Testament, this is actually where we get to see God's magnificent plan of redemption and the reconciliation of the races of the world beginning to take place. How God is going to fulfill his original vision for the races of the world. By Jesus' time, basically the Jews looked down on other races that they considered to be dogs. They wouldn't even eat with Gentiles, you know. They were superior to Gentile sinners because they had the law of God. Now, when Jesus shows up and starts urging people to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, to be kind to people, and he serves not only the prostitutes and tax collectors, but also Gentiles as well, people are absolutely outraged with him, all these religious leaders, right? Like in, for example, he praises the faith of a Roman centurion. He goes to minister to a non-Jewish woman. He, in Luke chapter 4, uh, talks about the faith of Naaman the Syrian and also the widow of Zarephath, highlighting that over his fellow Jews that are currently listening to him and don't believe in him. His fellow Jews are so angry, they try to throw him off a cliff. You know, the point is, Jesus was condemned to the cross because he upset the hypocritical and racist, self-righteous religiosity of the Jewish religious leaders of his day. But despite the way they treat him, he refuses to respond in kind. But even as they nail him to the cross, he cries out and says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And after he rises from the dead, he commissions his disciples to go out to all the nation, all the races of the world to proclaim the good news of his death and resurrection giving the hope of life to all peoples. And though the Jews crucified him, he doesn't leave them out and say, your race is done for, let's go to other people, to all peoples. And this hope is available, right, to everyone who would believe, right? The last words of Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says, basically, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And surely I tell you, I'm with you to the very end of the age as you take your ministry to the world. See, it's all nations. See, through Jesus' death on the cross, we learn that God was reconciling the entire world to himself, but also reconciling the races of people with one another by turning them into disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, and to highlight the magnitude of this major shift in human history, we actually see something that affirms this, that's spectacular in Acts chapter 2, when the church of Christ basically gets going in his birth. Verses 1 to 12 read like this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? I love verse 12. That's the question we should be asking as well. What does this mean? Do you realize what is so significant about the coming of the Holy Spirit when it comes to redemption history, if you read your Bible? Do you realize that when you read this, and you read this very long list of people groups that are listed here, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Cretans, and so on, do you know what that sounds like? It sounds just like the table of nations that I just spoke about in Genesis chapter 10, when it talks about the nations that came from Noah's line spreading out through all the earth. However, what is happening here that mirrors Genesis 10 and 11 is the, happening in the exact opposite way that the Tower of Babel happened. See, at Babel, people were scattered in disunity and in racial rivalry with each other and in confusion because they couldn't speak the language. When Jesus comes at Pentecost, when, when Jesus comes and dies and the church is birthed at Pentecost, what we see is that Jesus is reversing the curse of Babel and instead reuniting the peoples of the world under a new banner, not the banner of being a Jewish people, but being a Christian people, followers of Christ. In other words, through the word of God being spoken very clearly, people were being reborn into a new Christian race, one that knows no boundaries on color and location of where people live. See, Babel led to condemnation and racism, whereas the cross of Jesus Christ leads to salvation and reconciliation. See, God loves the races of the world. They were his idea, right? As that children's song says, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And that's not just kids, it's people in this world. See, Jesus loves the races of the world because they were his idea at the very beginning. And he loves them enough so that even in his death and resurrection, he sent his Holy Spirit at Pentecost and sent tongues on all the people to show, give a small picture, a small picture, a foretaste of what heaven is going to look like. You know, the third thing I want to say, I think just follows from this, right? Racial reconciliation comes only through the cross. This is why when you understand this, you can read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, that says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The peace is in him. Reconciliation occurs in him. Or Galatians 3, 28, right? There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that race is extinguished when you come to know Jesus. It's not like, it's not like you know, that suddenly I cease to be Chinese. No, what it means here is that whether you're a Jew or you're Chinese, you're a man or a woman, you're a slave or you're free, you're all equal in value in the eyes of God. Because of Christ Jesus, because we're his children, we've been reborn, we're adopted, we're all royalty. How can you judge another person who is royal? 
See, the reason that the Christian church can enjoy such diversity and joy is because Jesus died first and foremost to make us his followers. I am first Christian before I am Chinese and Canadian. You might be a Filipino, a Russian, or whatever you are, but you are first a Christian, and my brother and my sister first before you are anything to do with your race. You know, this is the goal that God spoke about in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. See, and one day this vision in the prophets will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Like it says in like Revelation 7, where we will see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne of God, singing praises to Him and declaring His greatness and His glory for all eternity. That will be a glorious day, brothers and sisters, where we will stand there and understand each other, even as we look at the races of the world who are worshiping Jesus Christ. You know, church, as I wrap this up, we need to ask, you know, and this is the question the world is asking. What is the solution to racism, right? Or as those philosophers, the black eyed peas said, right? Where is the love? Where is the love? What's the solution to racism? And here's the deal. Prisons, laws, and social media shaming can actually only make people stop people. It can make people, like, it can stop them from opening their mouths and assaulting others verbally, physically, because of fear of punishment, but only the gospel can actually make people love each other from the heart and truly be reconciled. See, only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and that you're a sinner in absolute need of his grace can help you end racism in your own heart. It can end the striving to try to put yourself above other people or to crush others and to establish your own self-worth, to have to fight for that because you know it's already been done for you. Jesus made you his own child. He promises to take care of you. What more do you need? You can be walked on and trampled over and it will still not affect who you truly are in Christ Jesus. See, when you become a recipient of God's mercy and you've experienced the love of God and His salvation and you're tempted to look at another human being and to verbally abuse them or to think poorly of them, you hear the gospel speaking to you and saying, how can you? How can you be such an unforgiving servant? Did not your master forgive you of something greater? Could you not forgive them for what they have done to you? See, the gospel kills sin in your heart, the root, and frees you to love other people, even people who have abused you, yes, even those who have exercised racism towards you. You know, for those who have treated me or my family with racism, I actually have no hidden desire in my heart to see their deeds posted on social media and for the internet to go to work on them and to see their lives destroyed. The only thing I want in my heart is for these people who are poor lost sheep, dead in their sins and trespasses, apart from God, living without hope in this world, for them to know, to have their eyes open, to know the hope that is in my God, the true and living God and in Jesus Christ. I don't want them shamed. I want them saved. Jesus died on that cross praying for his enemies, 
Can we not do the same thing, brothers and sisters, in this world? I cannot, I cannot hate the image of God that is stamped on the face of another human being. Nor can I cling to racist thinking because a race is part of my father's world and his idea. See, the stone walls of a government prison and the unbending, ironclad, anti-racist laws that we might construct in society will never be able to crack the stone hearts of people. Never. But the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ can melt a heart of stone and turn an individual from a hater and killer into a lover and a self-sacrificer. Only God can put a heart of flesh and love into a place where there was once a heart of stone and hatred. You know, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are listening online here, I'll ask you a question, you know. Do you struggle, actually, with racism? Do you struggle with the idea of maybe pushing other people down or oppressing them so that your life can be better taken of? Are you not functionally believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and that God will take care of you, that he establishes your worth? Or do you look to use other people for your own benefit? It's not just racism. At the root of racism, like I said, is self-interest and human sin. Do you find in your own soul such a desire to have your own self-interest, whether it's your own opinions expressed, running your business the way that you want, living the way that you do, do you think that's so important that you're willing to push other people down and crush them? You may not be a racist in the words that you say, but you are still a self-interested sinner at heart, and that is what God condemns. You know, if that's you and you're struggling with that today, I would invite you to do business with God, to confess of your sins to him and say, God, I lay my self-interest down. Help me to establish and be reminded, be reminded that my worth lies in Jesus Christ and I don't need to make a name for myself. Or maybe you're here actually and you're struggling to reconcile with other people that you have broken relationships with today. And you're looking at this and you're saying, where did this come from? Maybe you're surprised by it, or they hurt you so badly and you say, I want to treat them badly. You may not be a racist here, but the question is, can you lay your self-interest down and learn to love your enemy or someone who has treated you like enemy and say, God, I don't know how this is possible. Help me to love. Help me to forgive. And you who reconciled the races of the world together through your son, Jesus Christ, could you help me reconcile with them today? Friends, you know, there's so much more that I could say about this topic. And next week, I'm going to speak more of this idea. I'm going to delve into systemic racism, the civil rights movement, and racism within the church of Jesus Christ as well. I can talk a lot about this now, but let's remember today, brothers and sisters, that the only hope, wherever we go with this, the only hope for an end to racism lies at the foot of the cross in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for being a kind God to us who does not repay us according to our sins. Whether it's sinful rebellion against you in terms of racism or it's just self-interest that uses other tools to hurt others for our own gain, God, you are a God who has lavished on us grace upon grace. Help us, Father, here to love our brothers and sisters and to never denigrate the image of God that is stamped on another human being. Help us never to harbor anger in our hearts towards them. Help us to love those who have hurt us or treated us badly, to show mercy even as we have been recipients of mercy. So, Father, we thank you for the cross. 
and that Jesus Christ undid the curse of Babel by dying for us on that cross. And one day we will stand with the races of the world worshiping you, O God, in joy for all eternity. In Jesus' name we praise. Amen.